I'd like to welcome you all to this Sydney Ideas. My name's Susan Templeman. I'm a communication consultant and have the privilege of working with a number of the academics at the University of Sydney. Uh, tonight, my role is merely to moderate and to guide the conversation that you'll have with this very diverse group of people. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So, cancer screening. That's our topic for tonight. Uh, this is the second of the two, 2015 Sydney Ideas specific health forum series. Uh, we're pleased to have you all here tonight, not just to listen, but hopefully to share your thoughts, ask questions, and share the experience that you may have had. Uh, we welcome robust discussions. Uh, if, you, if I can just remind you, phones on silent would be terrific. Uh, we are um, going to work through a number of issues so that, and I'm just going to highlight those for you so you can think about when you might want to make a comment or ask a question. So in terms of the process, we're going to talk generally about screening, about some of the concerns about over-screening and, and, and general um, scene-setting information from some of our experts and those who work in the field and those who've experienced it. We're then going to move more specifically into breast cancer screening, then we'll move into prostate cancer screening. We also hope we will have time to touch on some of the other health screening uh, areas like lung, bowel uh, and any others that you might like to, to talk about. Uh, so if that gives you a bit of an idea, towards the, as we start each section, I'll get a bit of a feel from people as to who would like to ask a question so that I can try and manage the time. The aim is that we finish the conversation by eight o'clock so that there's time for you to have a, have a discussion uh, before we force you out the door. Am I right time-wise? Yes. Just seeing a frown there. Um, now, if you would rather not stand up and ask a question and have a roving microphone put in your hand, although we really encourage you to do that, there is also the Twitter feed. So if you, if you do have a question that you'd like to send through on Twitter, uh, we'll one of our helpers will be thrilled to stand up and ask that question on your behalf. As you can see, there is a Twitter feed. If, you're, if you'd like to tweet, feel free, the hash Sid health. Uh, is there, and I think you probably saw the at Sid Ideas. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, great. It disappeared from the screen before I could reference it. Um, the aim is that the discussion flows, so if there is an issue that we don't feel we can adequately address or resolve, there will be time afterwards to talk to the members of the panel. So let me introduce these people who are um, keen to share their thoughts and be quizzed by you. Uh, I'll start on the end here, and we have Alex Barrett, who's a Professor of Public Health, an epidemiologist and public health physician here at the University of Sydney. She has an international reputation for her research in cancer screening and overdiagnosis in breast cancer screening. 
uh, Alex has extensive experience in the development and evaluation of patient decision aids to support shared decision making in cancer screening and women's health. This year, she published a landmark trial of information about breast cancer overdiagnosis to support informed choice in breast screening in the Lancet Medical Journal. Alex has published a book on prostate cancer screening called Let Sleeping Dogs Lie, What Men Should Know Before Getting Tested for Prostate Cancer. Sitting next to Alex is Roberta Higginson, who is a breast cancer survivor, recent chair of the Breast Cancer Action Group in New South Wales, and a member of Cancer Voices New South Wales Executive Committee. Roberta is a happy breast screen customer due to the early detection and diagnosis of a small but aggressive cancer 15 years ago. She became involved in advocacy for cancer screening after issues surrounding her treatment. Uh, and I will get you to give them a round of applause when I run through them. Thank you for holding off till then. Uh, sitting in the middle, Glenn Salkeld. Professor Salkeld's a health economist and a National Health and Medical Research Council fellow and head of the School of Public Health here at the University of Sydney with over 25 years experience in public health research and education. He's conducted cost effectiveness and preference research in the field of screening for over two decades, covering breast, bowel and prostate cancer. Uh, uh, Glenn has a particular interest in developing and applying online decision support tools to help individuals make decisions about screening and diagnostic tests, uh, surgery and other therapeutic options. Next to Glenn, Dr Liz Miles, a general practitioner and former president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and director of the Hornsby Brooklyn GP unit. Uh, Liz is a member of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, a director of therapeutic guidelines, and is on a number of state and commonwealth committees associated with the RACGP, I could spell it all out, but we get the idea, the Quality and Safety Commission, ComCare, and the New South Wales Agency for Clinical Innovation. So someone very involved in the policy side. Uh, and finally, on, on my far end, Warwick Lee, an adjunct professor of medical radiation sciences in the Faculty of Health Sciences at University of Sydney. Uh, Warwick's a diagnostic radiologist with expertise in mammographic screening for breast cancer. He's the past state radiologist for Breast Screen New South Wales and has been involved with Breast Screen New South Wales since its inception in 1989. I know he doesn't look that old. Warwick is committed to quality assurance as it relates to breast imaging in both the diagnostic and screening environment. So please welcome our panellists. Uh, just to uh, set the scene a little bit, we have a short video prepared by the University of Sydney and on cue, it's just going to appear above you, unfortunately. <laughs> any moment now. Are we going to try again? It was looking so good there. 
it's likely that you're here because you have some connection to these issues uh, rather than you just saw the free alcohol sitting there. So what I'd love to do, just to give the panel an idea of who, who is here, who they're having a conversation with, is just to ask for a bit of a show of hands. If you're a professional working in this field or researching in this area, can you just pop your hand up so that we can get a sense of what proportion that is? So that's, a, that's a reasonable number. Thank you. Now, of those who haven't put their hands up, if, if you're here because you have a personal connection, whether it's yourself or family or friends, to an issue around cancer screening, could you give us an indication? Beautiful. And there's some people who haven't had their hand up, and, and I'm going to make a guess that perhaps it's just an area you're interested in. Uh, would that be right? I'm seeing some nodding heads there. Terrific. So that will help our experts and, our, and experts in all different ways uh, hopefully address some of the issues. And the first thing I'd really like to start with, I guess, is uh, ask you, Glenn, what is the public health benefit of having cancer screening in Australia? So let's start big. So um, I guess there are two things. Um, one is we make a big promise. So we promise to save lives. And secondly, I'm not sure if it's a public health benefit or a political benefit, but screening and cancer screening is popular and politicians know it. So, but when I say we, we save lives, in a sense that's kind of overstating it because we all die of something. Uh, what we're really doing is actually buying time. And of course it varies. So some people who are screened might gain a couple of months, some many months, some might gain a number of years. So the public health benefit, I guess, is really couched in terms of can we give you precious time that you otherwise would have lost if you hadn't been screened and found to have cancer. What we don't talk about as much, and I'm pretty sure it's going to come up tonight because it's already come up on the screen, uh, is there are downsides. Um, and so what we're really interested in is what's the net public health benefit so there's good and there's bad. Um, where does the balance lie? And I guess just to lay my cards on the table right up front is, although of course in public health we're very keen to promote uh, any intervention that works, ultimately it's actually a choice for individuals to make. So really I guess our job is, is how do we make individuals aware all those benefits and those harms, all the factors that are relevant to make up your own mind. Now, let's get clear about exactly what national screening programs that the politicians love um, that are in place. Um, and Liz, as a GP, you're at the front end of administering those programs some of the time. So can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think it's, first of all, it's useful to reflect what, what is screening. And screening is basically testing for disease in healthy people who have no symptoms. Uh, and there are three national screening programs. There's the cervical cancer screening program, which even though we have uh, cervical cancer vaccine these days, the program is still there. And that's aimed at women uh, from the age of about 18 or 20 to the age of 70 uh, who are sexually active. Um, and they have that every two years. And that's been very successful. Uh, we have the lowest mortality from cervical cancer in the world here in Australia. Um, there is also the breast 
cancer screening program, which we've heard about through breast screen, and there's a bowel cancer screening program. Um, and anyone who's turned 50 and thought that maybe they were getting old and then really knew it when they got that kit in the post um, will be familiar with that program. Uh, although the kits at this stage are only being posted out every five years, the program is actually, you know, the screening guidelines suggest that it should be done every two years. And with all of these screening programs, uh, your risk may vary if you've got a strong family history of a disease. So actually coming and talking it through with your GP is an important part of that. Now, we've already had the issue of um, overdiagnosis raised by Glenn, and I think, Alex, it'd be great to hear from you. Um, let's talk about that. How do we know it exists? And I guess part of me wonders, why is it a problem? You know, surely it's great that we're getting tested and finding things out. Thanks, Sue. So I'm going to answer in a slightly roundabout direction, so please bear with me. This is really a story about technology. And since the invention of the stethoscope in 1816, medicine and technology have advanced together. They've really gone hand in hand. You just have to think about the things that have happened in the last 100 years, x-rays, blood tests, pap smears, to realize that we use technology every day in medicine and in healthcare to diagnose everything from broken bones to pregnancy, from anemia to cancer. So I need to take you on a little thought experiment. So in an ideal scenario, when we get a new diagnostic test, what we hope for is that the test will diagnose better. It will diagnose more accurately, faster, perhaps with fewer side effects and maybe cheaper. And in the process of doing that, it will improve health outcomes because that's why we're all here, is because we want to work towards having the healthiest society that we can. So the pap smear is a great example. Fantastic test that has um, had a massive effect on cervical cancer, has cut the incidence or the occurrence of cervical cancer and cut the death rate um, very significantly. But while there's lots of good technology, and we could give you a few more examples, there's also the possibility of the worst case scenario. So in a worst case scenario, what happens is a new test finds more disease, but it doesn't actually improve health outcomes. This sounds like a very strange idea, so I'll give you an example. In South Korea, they've been working very hard to address problems with cancer, and they've actually funded general practitioners with ultrasound machines in their rooms to do ultrasound screening for thyroid cancer. Sounds on the face of it like a really good idea, but what has happened is the incidence or the occurrence of thyroid cancer has gone up 15-fold in 20 years. So you can imagine the curve for thyroid cancer going up like this. So we have many, many times more people being diagnosed with thyroid cancer and being treated for it. But at the same time, the death rate from thyroid cancer has not changed at all. It's a completely flat line. So the only way we can explain this is to look at the possibility that this is actually over-testing and over-diagnosing some cancers that don't progress. And we know with thyroid cancer that there is a subset of the cancers, small papillary cancers, that have an excellent prognosis. And that's what's mostly being detected. 
So I don't want to trivialise this because there are thyroid, can thyroid cancers that can be deadly and I'm not saying they don't exist. But the trouble with this new testing paradigm is that it's not picking up those. It's picking up a vast pool in the population of very good prognosis cancers and leading to those people being diagnosed and overtreated. You asked me why does it matter? Yeah. Okay, so there's two reasons why it matters. The first is it matters for all of us as individuals because none of us want to be labelled with a cancer and treated for a cancer if we don't need to be. If we need to be, of course. But if you don't need those treatments, you wouldn't want to go through those treatments uh, and run all the risks if you didn't need to. But the second thing is that it matters for us as a community. Because if we massively increase the numbers of people that we're diagnosing and treating, that means that there is a big opportunity cost. And so as a community, we need to think about, is this actually the best way of spending our money? So I've given you the ideal case and the worst case, and we have some of the examples that we're going to talk yeah. about tonight that are in between. And, and in fact, that does lead to a question that I think um, I might direct initially to Glenn. Is there an assessment that, in general, screening for cancer saves money? Or does it cost us in I, other I ways? I'm an economist, so I should give you at least two answers. Uh, <laughs> and I'll give you one. Um, no. So I think screening for PKU might save money. That's on newborn um, um, kids. Uh, but essentially, it's a real myth. But actually, I um, wonder why the question, not that you pose it, but why do we ask the question? We don't expect most of what we do in healthcare to save money. In fact, quite the opposite, it, it costs us money. So it costs money to actually produce that health that Alex is talking about. So in a way, we're setting ourselves up for a bit of a fall if we expect the screening, which does cost money to run, uh, whether it's breast cancer screening or bowel cancer, uh, to save money. There is some offsets in terms of if you get the cancer early, and the treatment is less intensive or expensive. But look, you only have to turn on the TV and follow the pharmaceutical benefits scheme uh, outcomes, the latest melanoma drug that's funded. It's just more and more expensive. So our capacity to spend more is endless. Um, and we need to get better at actually deciding uh, what's value for money. I will pick up at one point that Alex raised, because. Something I learned, and I think it was 1997, um, I was on the very first ministerial committee on bowel cancer screening, so I'm jumping ahead just a little bit. But we were talking about a very uh, scientific approach to weighing up the benefits and the risks and the cost of bowel cancer screening. And we got to the topic of false positives. That is, you have your um, fecal occult blood test, it comes back, you have a, a colonoscopy, and subsequently found you don't have cancer. And I said, oh, well, we'll have to try and keep these unnecessary colonoscopies to a minimum. And a wise, uh, well, he seemed wise, I was so young then, uh, <laughs> oh, clinician said to me, wrong word, mate, not unnecessary, necessary. And I thought, we're coming at it from different perspectives here what I classified as an unnecessary expenditure, he saw as necessary. And so it sets up a tension uh, between the population <coughs> angle, which is very public health, and the individual patient, which is, I guess, what's best for me. 
I'm not saying it's resolvable. We may not resolve it tonight, but uh, I certainly learned that we can talk about the same thing, but actually have very different takes on it. And we will talk in more detail with Warwick in a moment about um, overdiagnosis in uh, or the mammography stuff. And and but before we do that, I'm going to turn to Roberta to come at it from a consumer perspective, but I also want to check whether anyone would like to ask a question on this general issue of overdiagnosis or diagnosis or screening before we move into the more specific breast or prostate ones. Your questions might fit better in those sections, but I just thought I'd do a quick check. Oh, great. So let me go to Roberta. Now, okay, these are um, people working in the field, giving their views. You've been there, you've experienced it. How do you, do you feel and how do you think all the people you talk to about this feel about the complexity, I guess, of these screening issues? Look, it is very complex, but it really depends upon the person, how old they are, for instance. I mean, to my mind, um, certainly screening um, for, for breast cancer is extremely worth it, a risk worth taking if you're over, um, if you're over 50. Um, if you're not over 50, then the situation is very different. And, and do you have discussions with people in general about screening? Does it come up as they know your involvement, from, especially from a consumer and into the policy side? Yes, well, I mean, people are always very interested in what they should do themselves. And I do believe that we all need to take personal responsibility and make the decision that is best for them, so that not all decisions are going to be the same. Yeah, so let's move more specifically into the um, breast cancer screening area. Now, from tomorrow, I will be a 52-year-old woman with no history of breast cancer in my family anywhere. Warwick, why should I consider having a mammogram? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, and it's probably pretty timely as far as the discussion has moved tonight. Uh, so, so far we've been having a lot of discussions about um, uh, overdiagnosis and the potential harm of any screening program, which is uh, a very, very important area to discuss. I might get you to move your microphone slightly, move it to you rather than you to it. Yes. Uh, but uh, tonight is about a balance between uh, cost, uh, about uh, harm and benefit of a program. So if we wind it back a little bit to uh, the benefit of screening, uh, the screening for mammography in particular, uh, the randomised trial started way back in 1963. Uh, and there were the year I was born. <laughs> and what a great year. I've already given that one uh, away, haven't I? <laughs> um, and the, the last trial, and they went through until about the late uh, 90s. Uh, and there were 10 trials, and uh, if they're all taken into consideration, there's a 20% reduction in mortality from women invited to breast screen. Uh, not just the women who partake in breast screening mammography, the women who are invited from a population basis. Uh, and Certainly there's been, in the 30-odd um, years that screening's been around, 35 years now, isn't it, um, that screening's been around in Australia, there's been a lot of discussions about the uh, possible, the balance between benefits and harm from the screening process. Uh, but to answer your question, why should you have screening? Because from a population basis and from an individual basis, participation in screening saves lives. Now, to try, people such as uh, 
uh, Glenna and Alex and myself and Liz have been, uh, have been discussing this topic of overdiagnosis versus benefit for, for a long while. Uh, and um, it has really um, uh, dominated the discussion about screening, and perhaps so it should. Um, and so in 2012, the UK uh, government and screening, uh, the health service, instituted an independent panel on uh, breast cancer screening. One of the problems with this whole discussion is that we have two camps. We have uh, those that are pro-screening and those that uh, are looking at, well, we could use the word uh, anti-screening. Uh, um, where is the, where does the, um, where should we put the final decision? And uh, so a lot of the people who have been writing these two camps have got a lot of uh, history of uh, journals and writings and career, and I'm an example. I've been involved in breast screen for 30 years. So the UK panel um, put together uh, very eminent epide epidemiologists, statisticians, none of whom, and um, um, advocates uh, um, from the, from the uh, population, none of whom had ever been involved in a professional uh, way with regards to breast screening and looked at the evidence. And they came down to agree with largely with the randomised controlled trials that we'd ha we'd, uh, have been uh, started the breast screening program. Uh, and that was a very important publication uh, led by uh, Sir Michael Marmot. It was thought that perhaps that would uh, put some balance into the argument, uh, but there were many, many, many articles, uh, uh, letters to the editor after that uh, article was produced. Half of them said that uh, uh, Professor Marmot underestimated the benefits and overestimated the harms, the, the life saved and the overdiagnosis. The other half, it was around the other way. They said that he <laughs> overestimated the uh, benefits, underestimated the um, overdiagnosis. And he made a statement that it, his work demonstrated how hard it is to make evidence-based decisions in life. Well, I, I'll just pick up on that, because I mm. did a bit of research before coming here tonight, and just about every article or study I read had slightly different uh, findings. So I found a very recent one from earlier this month, a UK study that showed breast cancer screening only reduces mortality by 10%, and a US one showed significant false positives. And I guess there's some of the um, concerns about overdiagnosis or, or in breast screening. Mm. Alex, do you have some thoughts around, specifically with breast screening, the overdiagnosis issue there? I think the first thing that I would say is it's really important to understand that there's a difference between false positives and overdiagnosis. So a false positive is when you have, in this example, a mammogram and there's something that the person reporting it is not quite sure and they ask you to come back for some more investigations because there's a question mark about what's the significance of this lesion. And that's investigated and you're given the all clear and told it's not cancer. So that experience of being told maybe there's something wrong, we need to investigate further, that's a false positive and that's described by people as quite a a distressing, difficult experience to go through, but it's time limited, it finishes, and you know, you, most people move on very well from that. By contrast, an overdiagnosed cancer is in fact 
a very counterintuitive concept. It's a cancer that is harmless, that is not, that is a preclinical cancer because, as Liz said, that it's a very important point that screening is done to people with no symptoms. So we're looking for early cancers before there's any clinical evidence, before there's a lump, for example. So we're looking for preclinical cancers and some of those cancers will never go on to become clinically apparent. So they won't cause symptoms and they certainly won't become life-threatening. So an overdiagnosed cancer is a cancer that meets a pathologist's definition. If you look, take a, a biopsy and look at it down a microscope, it looks like cancer. It's called cancer, but it doesn't behave in the way that we're used to thinking about cancer. Now, yes, and you're, you're exactly the person I was going to come to, so you add your bit in and then I'll come back with another question yeah. around that. I think there's two issues, and, and one is, um, you know, are you going to be screened or not? And the second one is, if you have a cancer diagnosis, what are you going to do with it? And that's a very, very different question. I suppose I'm coming from this from a point of view of somebody who really benefited from being screened. So that I was in my early um, 50s, um, I had no symptoms, but I was diagnosed firstly with high-grade DCIS, but of course there was an invasive uh, section 2, which often happens. Um, I've now got um, five beautiful grandchildren and I'll have another one shortly. Now, if I hadn't have been screened at that stage, if my cancer had been left for even a short period of time afterwards, who knows what would happen? So that I think that I'm very fortunate that I was screened when I was. And you, you can talk about the, the benefits to the population that perhaps some lives will be saved. But if you think yours is the life that's going to be saved, you feel really differently about it. I bet you do. <laughs> um, how was the risk of, of the screening um, cancer? Was there any discussion with you about no. that? No, not at all. But then I'm in a different situation because um, I had a very um, complex medical history from when I was very, very young, and I also am somebody that had a very large number of x-rays when I was very small. So I suppose I wanted to be screened because I thought, well, is this going to make me more likely to be diagnosed with cancer? Even though I know when you have a mammogram, you know, you, you do get extra um, radiation, but gee whiz, you know, how many of us go overseas on holidays and fly in planes? So, um, yes, I, I, I'm happy to put up with that small increase in risk. Now, I want to get an indication of people who would like to ask a question in this area. Are there questions to take further what people have said? Yeah, if you can just give me an indication, because we've got microphones. Dan's got the mic. So can you see, can you sort of see the people? I'm going to throw, so there's a couple at the back and then there's a gentleman down here and then this fellow in the front row here who looks vaguely familiar to me. Um, uh, but Liz, I'm going to come to you. Just, just before we move to that, you deal with these issues on a daily basis, I suspect, in discussing with people who, who, who may go through screening for breast cancer. How does that work? What do you say? What, what happens? Well, I think, I mean, as GPs, we deal with so many different conditions across a very broad spectrum. And when someone comes and sees me, they sometimes actually come in with a list. You know, they've got four or five problems that they want to talk about. Um, and so uh, in areas, we, we, we do tend to rely on endorsed guidelines. And the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners actually puts out a book, I bought a copy, you know, it's guidelines for preventative activities in general practice and it goes through all the cancer screening guidelines to 
uh, give us a sense of whether it's something that's of benefit or not or what points we may need to discuss. And we tend to rely on that. We don't have the time to go back to the literature to go through individual studies as you may if you're an academic. So um, the guidelines for breast cancer screening are for women between the ages of 50 and 70, and obviously it's a little bit different if you've got a strong family history, but you know, it may not be um, as, uh, you know, as much screening as people anticipate. In fact, one of the issues is that people often want to be screened more frequently or from an earlier age than is recommended. And so then we get into those discussions about um, you know, the harms and the benefits. But for someone who's routinely coming along you know, for a health check at, at the age of you know, 55 or 60, um, and they say that they you know, haven't had a mammogram for a few years, then we'll say, oh, well, do you want to go off to breast screen? Um, yeah, and that has certainly made it much more accessible. That program mm -hmm. is much less daunting, I suppose, than it might have been in the early days. Now, there were the, who ended up with the microphone down the back there? Sorry. I happen to know this man's name, Ron. He's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm Do you just want to explain your interest or...? It's, it's just a broad interest and I'm over 50, well over 50, so it, I'm, it's a personal interest as well, obviously. I, I remember a couple of decades ago there was full body screening, uh, an option oh. was offered to people, oh. and I thought it would take off because there was a chance to find out if you had any diseases, any cancers, any anything, and I was surprised that eventually it didn't take off. But I'm, I, um, Liz, you just mentioned then uh, people wanting to be more frequently um, yes. screened than necessary, and I, I wondered if that leads to the role of the media and with they, the role that plays in terms of those constant stories about breast cancer, about bowel cancer and prostate cancer, the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole lot. That question's probably that... long enough. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so he responded that, very quickly. That's yeah. right. That gives me a good chance. If you can keep your questions tight, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, look, I think that, you know, I think the media may definitely play a role. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there. I think people are really anxious and they want to actually, you know, uh, find something early because they believe that that will actually save their life if they do that. Um, and there is also a view that a test tells you yes or no, and that if you have the test and it's all clear, then you can relax, and if the test finds something, well, that's good because you've found something that might have killed you if you, if you didn't have the test. So, you know, there's a lot of work that GPs have to put in to actually talk people through the fact that tests are, are not perfect, and that often, you know, particularly you raise the issue of whole body screening, I mean, you know, I say to people, we're as different on the inside as we are on the outside. You know, we're going to find things. I can tell you now, we will find things. We won't know what they are. We won't know whether they're dangerous or not, but they will probably lead to more tests. And more tests actually leads to more anxiety and more of a focus on, you know, needing to have more tests to get the answer. And it actually is really counterproductive, not to mention you know, the radiation that's associated with all of the 
the um, screening that you may be doing and, and other harms associated with the test. So I think you know, the concept that a test is the answer is something that we really need to get away from. But and if I recall, um, Liz, Alan Border actually was the face to this campaign. Oh, yeah. So who do you trust? I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and, and if I recall, the byline was uh, when hubby turns 50, give him a present or something along those lines, a total body scan. Um, it's not self-promotion, but our group uh, in, in the school was involved in actually investigating that because it's illegal to make therapeutic claims uh, where they're not backed up by evidence. And that was a prime example where, in fact, really the purpose had not much to do with health. Um, Can I just add, we, that would be a have. good example of uh, my worst-case scenario for a mm. diagnostic mm. test. Uh, from a diagnostic radiologist's point of view, we have a term for, for that. We call it an incidental OMA. What uh, is it? The incidental OMA. So right. rather than a lipoma or a carcinoma, we have an incidental OMA. <laughs> and when I look at these incidental OMAs, this is the way I do it. I cover up one eye and try to pretend uh, that it's not there. And I might be sounding frivolous, but um, uh, it is a fact of life. And what we're talking about is judgment. Um, it's not all black and white. It would be lovely if we had a ticker tape uh, comes out and tells us what the disease is. But uh, there's a lot of judgment that goes in and a lot of judgment in weighing up the, the uh, benefits and harm. Was there a, um, and Liz, you might be the front line of this, was there a Jolie factor? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, Warwick gives you saw it. Well, uh, do you mind? No, no. Yeah, uh, rather than the uh, Angelina Jolie factor, one is the Kylie Minogue factor, which was um, uh, so Angelina Angela Jolie was more with the um, genetic mutations, whereas um, uh, Kylie Minogue was with the clinically diagnosed breast cancer, uh, and that led to a huge surge in women. Uh, Putting, knocking on the door to breast screen to have a, a screening mammogram. Unfortunately, uh, Kylie was under 40 when she was diagnosed with a breast can a cancer, which is not, uh, not only is it not in the target age group, which is 50 to 74 now, um, she's not those women under 40 are not eligible for breast screening because there's, it's not beneficial enough. Uh, and that uh, had two consequences. One, uh, explaining to those women that uh, they shouldn't be having the screening. Uh, but there are a lot of women who are out of target age group between 40 and 50 who burdened the whole public health system so that the finances and the costs and, uh, is becoming a real problem. And the women who should be getting screened, should be getting assessed, should be having their cancers diagnosed uh, for a period of time were not. Now, the microphone is with this gentleman down the front. Yes, uh, just a point of clarification. When you say a 20% reduction in mortality, is that a survival rate of five years, 10 years? No, no, it's reduction in, not survival, it's reduction in mortality and it's disease-specific mortality, it's not all-cause mortality. Can you so say that in layperson's sorry, terms yes, for yes, me, yes, please? Sorry, sorry. Okay, survival is uh, living after the diagnosis of a disease. And that brings, and I'm sitting on this table, I don't want to uh, uh, speak too much, it's more uh, Glenn's and Alex's area, but uh, you can diagnose a cancer um, five years earlier uh, in one woman and five years later in the next and they die at the same time. So you've created bias. So survival is not the key. Uh, the key to assessing the program is um, uh, 
uh, is mortality, when do they die from it. Uh, and then, uh, when you're looking at mortality, you don't want to, you, you need to look at the women who are dying from breast cancer, not from their heart attack, from their stroke, from their uh, pneumonia, from getting a broken leg, but dying from breast cancer. Um, and that's what the 20% is. Thank you. Now, the microphone is about to move, and there were two gentlemen, uh, gentlemen with the red vest, I can see. Thank you very much. Um, I, I agree entirely with Alex's um, understanding of technology and how one has to be very cautious when we introduce new technology and certainly we see technology driving practice, which is certainly not we, what we want to see. But specific to breast screening, I think it's important to say, just coming back to, your, to the statement whereby new technology provides more information but doesn't necessarily improve outcome. Was particularly for breast cancer, if we look at some of the new innovations in breast cancer, particularly I'm thinking about digital breast homosynthesis and the evidence that exists for that, it would suggest that the cancers that are being detected by these uh, new technologies in, in breast imaging are actually detecting the cancers that we want to detect. Uh, they are the more invasive, they are the more um, aggressive cancers and certainly the, the evidence today would, to date would support that. I can just go on to another thing very, very quickly, and I'm delighted that both Roberta and Liz referred to radiation dose, because sometimes a fear is out there that the radiation dose in mammography is significant. And certainly we, it, we would have to um, respond and say that the dose in mammography is indeed very low, and it will become lower. And to put it into some sort of context, the dose from a full examination mammogram is probably equivalent just to living for two months. Now, I think, um, Liz, you probably, I mean, Alex, you'd like to pick up on the first part of that, I suspect, and yes. talk that through a bit. Um, so, in the um, spirit of robust debate. Indeed. Um, <laughs> I don't entirely agree. I think that my um, reading and recent, what I've heard recently about um, Tomosynthesis, 3D mammography, is actually quite the opposite. And um, Warwick and I were both actually at a breast imaging uh, meeting at which this was discussed. But the, the issue with 3D is that, yes, it detects a lot more cancer. It's about a 30% increase in the cancer detection rate. What isn't clear is whether that delivers improvement in health outcomes. Now, it would be fantastic if it does. Um, but at the moment, we don't have those data in hand because we don't have interval cancer rates. So we would expect that if you pick up, if you're picking up more of the cancers that matter, then in the subsequent years, there will be lower rates of presentation of clinical cancers because clinically presenting cancers with symptoms because those cancers have already been found by screening. So we actually need to wait for those data to come in. And the only way we're going to get those data is actually if we do proper head-to-head -head randomized control trials. It's a very difficult area to research, but I think that information is absolutely critical. And that's what we heard in the presentation by Andy Evans from Scotland, that it really is important that we wait until we've got this evidence about improved health outcomes before we start ro rolling this out on the assumption that the benefit-harm ratio will be as good or better than it was before. Like that's, a, that's an ideal and an aspiration and I hope it happens, but I think we have a responsibility to women to know that, not to just assume it. 
Um, uh, Warwick, you want to add, and then I'll come back yes. to Roberta. Uh, I, I agree largely with what uh, both Patrick and Alex have been saying. Uh, they're points that contribute to the overall discussion. I think what we have to be careful about, the, the conference that uh, Alex is referring to, when breast tomosynthesis, and that's 3D mammogram. So a mammogram is like uh, that mammogram up there, which is 2D. So it's a 2D image of a 3D structure. Uh, and there's overlap, and that's the difficulty. So the breast tomosynthesis, otherwise known as 3D mammograms, tries to unravel that, and that's the, the latest uh, um, innovation that is in clinical usage now. The initial papers show that it does, in fact, increase the detection rate of the invasive cancers. So at first sight, that sounds very exciting that we're going to find the more invasive cancers. But like anything, as you do more research, Perhaps those invasive cancers are not quite the big high-grade cancers, and that's the papers that are coming out now. Now, the point that I just want to put a word of caution in is that we don't then say, aha, so breast tomosynthesis is not as good as it was, because see, it's not detecting the high-grade cancers. At this stage, we don't know. So we need to temper our enthusiasm for breast the tomosynthesis, at the same time, we don't throw breast tomosynthesis out. We need to do the full, um, full research and make proper, good evidence-based decisions. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, I think there was a question um, about the, the media. And I think the media, and I'm afraid that some of the scientific journals have become part of the media, don't they're a bit mischievous, I would use the term. Uh, so I referred earlier on about randomised trials. Uh, there were 10 randomised trials that showed the 20% reduction. There were two trials that uh, done, began in 1980, the Canadian trials, uh, which did fail to show a reduction in breast cancer mortality. Yet those are the, they've republished their work from the 1980s, 25 years on, and they've repeated the studies, uh, repeated the findings that there was no benefit from screening mammography. There were problems with um, that program in the method of screening and the treatment. Yet a lot of the scientific journals and the media are only concentrating on those two trials and forgetting the other eight. And that's not balance. It's important we look at all the trials and not cherry-pick the trials that we want uh, to support an argument that we might have. I suspect we could do a whole evening on the media and its choice of stories. Mm. Uh, but, Roberta, you wanted to add something uh, to yeah, that. Look, a very important point, and I think it's very important that if you feel the need for a mammogram, go to breast screen, uh, because we need the evidence. If, if um, consumers are going to get good quality information, then we need these randomised trials, and that's not going to happen if you go and have a mammogram through your friendly sort of, um, um, you know, around the corner a radiology practice. Um, you know, the data's not collected, um, the um, radiologists don't have the same standard, etc. So please, 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 mammograms, breast screen. Now, there's a question up the back, but I just wanted to pick up on something that um, someone has mentioned, which I'd like to just throw to you, Glenn, about what would be considered an acceptable ratio of benefit to harm for breast cancer screening. It's been mentioned, but we haven't actually talked about yeah. that ratio. Look, I know many of us are in the business of numbers, but the one thing we haven't really talked about tonight uh, is 
What do people want? What are the values that are driving this? So um, I think we talk as if, as if we can get a number and recognise that it's good. And, and I guess ultimately it, it's up to the individual to decide for them personally what's the acceptable ratio of harms to benefits. How we explain it uh, I think is a massive challenge. Um, and certainly in my experience going out with tables representing probabilities and chances and all of that, it's just, you know, the eyes close and you've lost it. Mm. So I think we've really got to do a whole lot better in not thinking it's our duty to educate people in statistics and probability, but really to seek their values and their preferences because I think we can combine the evidence with the values in a way that provides an opinion which makes it easier for people to see why it's relevant to them. Great, thank you. And now I've got some more questions, but I know uh, there's a, a, a lady over there and there's another one there. Are there any questions on this side? Okay, and I'll come back to you two. And, but if we move through these, I knew we'd spend a bit of time on breast cancer screening. So <laughs> go for it. Uh, in terms of overdiagnosis, how do you know that the cancer is definitely not worth treating? And will that person then be subject to more frequent screening to check the cancer hasn't spread. Who'd like to have a, a go at that one? Um, Roberta, from your perspective. Yes. Um, I think, first of all, um, consumers wanted to know what's inside them so that for a woman 50 and over to have a mammogram, it's a simple test and the, 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 the harm is minimal um, to have that diagnosis. But what do we do then? Right, what we want is best practice multidisciplinary care so that a whole range of people can look at that woman and say, okay, she fits here, she needs this treatment, or she fits there, no, we can just do this. So, I mean, that's, I think, what we really need. I, I feel really concerned that some people um, perhaps are fearful of screening because they hear about overdiagnosis, so they don't ha be screened, and, and then perhaps you know the worst thing happens, and they have a cancer that should that could have been treated and wasn't. And Liz, you're obviously involved in then that process. Yes. Look, I think um, uh, you know once someone's told that they have a cancer, it's almost impossible for them not to want to get rid of it and to actually try and act upon it. I think that's a you know, is one of the issues of you know diagnosing something that may never have been symptomatic or caused any problems is that once you have actually diagnosed it, uh, I think almost every person who has, is told that feels that they then have to act upon it. What they actually do seems to vary enormously from one individual to another who I, I talk to. I mean, some people really want to do the absolute um, minimum that they can, you know, like they're very happy um, just to have a lumpectomy or, um, you know, the lumpectomy and radiotherapy, which is a sort of standard treatment for um, an early breast cancer. Other people want to, you know, just want to have mastectomies, it's, it's, it's something that really needs to be talked through in quite a lot of depth and it will vary a bit from one individual to another what, what they're comfortable with. Um, now Warwick, did you want to briefly add something uh, yes, to that? Yes, very briefly. Uh, a really important question that you've asked. Uh, if we take it back to pre-screening days or if we take screening out and we just consider a woman who's diagnosed breast cancer, one of the processes that the multidisciplinary team that's been mentioned does is to stage the cancer. 
so that is done regardless of whether it's screen detected or not. And part of the staging of the cancer is uh, to see how big it is, whether it's gone to the lymph nodes, and to see what type of cancer it is. That process can be brought backwards to see, in this staging process, which ones may be the overdiagnosed ones? Is it the small five millimeter ones? And I'll throw a word out, a tubular carcinoma, which might be sitting there. And you can tell the tubular carcinoma by doing a needle biopsy, looking down the microscope. And then the broad category of DCIS, you've heard Roberta kindly mention that she had the high grade DCIS with invasion, which needs to be treated. But perhaps the women who have the low grade DCIS, a small cluster, half the size of my fingernail, um, low grade or intermediate grade, do they need any more than being diagnosed and watched? And uh, there is a trial over in, a clinical trial over in England called, called the LORIS trial, L-O-R-I-S, if anyone wants to uh, do what a Google What was that? L-O-R-I-S. Uh, if you do a Google. And they've begun to watch and wait. And um, so if this, just the little specks of calcification that's diagnosed and it's found to be DCIS, um, they're randomising. Uh, recruiting women to some who will have the usual treatment and for low grade it is excise, uh, take, uh, take out the, the uh, calcification, possibly with radiotherapy, and the others will be to, to watch. Mm. And if we can get information to avoid over-treatment, that is the end, end aim. And, and I'll just pick up on one, one thing that uh, Liz mentioned. Briefly. Very briefly, yes. We think as medicos that the women will want that cancer got rid of. When they were recruiting, uh, recruiting for the Lurie's trial, and they did the, uh, the um, what's the popular, the groups they, the... Uh, Control group? The, no, 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 when they were doing the focus group, when they were asking the women what would happen, the, a lot of women said they will not be in the trial because they wanted the opportunity to watch and wait. And so what is important, and what this discussion is about, is giving patients, women, people, knowledge about what the options are. At the moment, the options we give them is to take it out, all right? Yeah. But if we can develop a method of, a good method of watching and waiting, maybe that's a good, another uh, tool that we can use for, for the women. Okay, now I have a question for Alex that I'm going to hold on to that really continues that, but there was another question on this side. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you very much for an interesting discussion. I'm un younger than 40 and I found a lump and about two days ago um, I went for um, a screening and um, so initially when I first found out I went to a GP who referred me to another doctor who then referred me to the uh, radiology centre around the corner actually. Um, so I, when I went there I, I, would, I was asked do I have a history? No, um, I'm younger than 40. And then uh, there was a discussion and then I, 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 I was given an ultrasound and the result was, oh, it was just a cyst. Um, and then I asked, oh, so should I have a mammogram? Um, oh, we don't think you need to have a mammogram. And then I, I thought, but then I was referred to do a mammogram. I, I didn't know what to do. And then the radiologist asked me, what do you want to do? I, I had no information whatsoever, and I asked him, so what are the consequences of having a, um, a, a mammogram? Negative consequences for me? Oh, well, you just get radiation. 
And I thought, uh, what does that even mean for me? I said, okay, let's do it because I, just in case. That's, that's how I came to my decision, but it was the worst kind of uninformed decision I could have. So my question to the panel is, in terms of educating the public, in terms of educating an individual patient like myself, how, what are the top-down structures? What are the governing bodies, the associations, what can be done, what interventions that can be done in order to address such a situation? Uh, I, I'm thinking of perhaps I could be giving some sort of um, links to a website at the GP, the very first step. Second step, I wasn't given any information and I didn't think I needed to look into what are the effects of the mammogram on me until at that point I was faced with a decision. I had no idea how to decide, I just have to decide on the spot. So I hope you could please um, comment on what could yeah. be done. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, look, I mean, that sounds like it was a very difficult process. Um, I think the first thing to say is that's not screening because you have a lump. Um, that's actually diagnostic testing that's happening. Um, so it's separate to the, the screening program. But breast lumps are very common, and uh, particularly in younger women, the vast majority of them are not cancers. Um, women's breasts also change with age. And so in the younger age group, because they're quite dense, mammograms aren't necessarily the best tool for actually identifying what the lump is which is why the radiologist would have uh, done an ultrasound. But um, the GP may have ordered a mammogram and ultrasound or may have left it up to the, the uh, radiologist. But either way, it sounds like you, know, that you, you had a lot of questions and it would have been good to have been able to talk that through at the time. It's not actually, um, you know, I mean, it is, we, we want to put the message out there to women that if they find a lump, that they should go to the GP and get it checked out. Um, but what happens from that point on will depend quite a lot on your age and uh, your family history and other factors. And it, it's important clearly as you've identified that um, you feel comfortable and informed going through that process. I think, Alex, this leads to something I know I wanted to ask you about, which feeds into that question, which is about your recent research uh, into the impact of women's decisions when they were given information about both the risks and the benefits of mammograms, probably not in a diagnostic sense, but in a screening sense, if you'd like to share some of that. Definitely in a screening sense. So I, I just want to re-emphasise what Liz said. That's really important. If you have a lump, we're not talking about screening. And everybody, all of us and everybody, all the doctors, you know, health professionals will all agree, go and get it investigated. That's, that's not what we're talking about. So talking about now the screening context where a woman has no symptoms and is wondering whether to participate in breast screen, for example. Uh, so... As Roberta has said, breast screen is for women, specifically it invites women to screening between the age of 50 to 74 years now. Over the last decade or so, we've developed information for women about considering screening as a choice. So not something that is something that you feel you should have to do, but something where we provide the information in a balanced way in a patient decision aid that you mentioned before, and people are able to work through the information and come to a decision that feels right for them in their circumstances, depending on their age and um, condition of health, and also their values and how they feel about things. So we designed this and we 
investigated in a randomised control trial last year, which was a big community sample where we um, contacted women who were coming up to their 50th birthday and randomised them to receive. Everybody received standard information from breast screen, but also two versions of a decision aid which gave more information, numeric information, about how many deaths from breast cancer can be averted by screening regularly, how many false positives there are, but also how many overdiagnosed cancers there are. So one group got that information with information about overdiagnosed cancers, and the other group got the um, information without that, just about deaths prevented and false positives. And then we compared them in terms of their knowledge. And we found that the women who got the decision aid with a full set of information um, were better informed and were able to make an, a more informed choice about screening. So the decision aid was effective in that way because this is actually not an easy concept to explain. So we really wanted to test out whether we could convey this information effectively. And it did achieve that. We also asked them if they intended to be screened and there was a small difference in the percentage who intend to be screened. So in the control group, 87% of the women said they intended to be screened when they turned 50. And in the intervention group who got information about overdiagnosed, 74%. So it made a small difference. Now this is on the background of a lot of positive information, a lot of positive messages and promotion of breast screen over many years. So it makes sense that there would be a lot of support in the community for it. Also, this is intention to be screened, and we will be following these women up to see whether they actually go through to be screened, because behaviour is a different thing that's influenced by lots of different factors. But that is the information that was published recently, and actually two of my co-authors are here, including Jolene Hirsch, who was the first author on the paper, and um, Nema Hussami, who's here. So I think if... Jolene had anything to add. I mean, there's so much one could say about that study. And definitely if I've... And, and people can certainly chat about that if I got anything at, wrong. at the end. Now, I know someone has the microphone up here. And I'm just double-checking. There was someone on this side who had a question. And then there's a young lady here. Uh, and if we can keep them short, I'm really conscious that there are some blokes in the room who might want us to move on to prostate cancer as well. So, please. Oh, mine's very, very quick because actually Alex just touched on it. I was wondering about screening rates, but also barriers. Having just tried to get a mammogram, they're not open at weekends. Breast screen, when, I just thought of it when Roberta was singing the praises of, you know, the celebrating breast screen, they're not open at the weekend, they're not open before work or after work. I, <laughs> it's very complicated. The barriers are there from that end as well. Uh, I, I, that really depends upon where you live because different services behave in different ways. Some of them are opened um, you know, later in the evening or, or, um, at, or you know, on the weekend. It's true, but the latest I could find was 6, 6 p.m. at Blacktown. Mm. I'm sorry about that. We must make it more space for people after work. Thank you. Yeah, look, that, that is the challenge, isn't it, with the sorts of lives that we lead? Yes. So in time under tradition, I have a comment and then a question. So the comment is that the top five causes of death in Australia, are none, of, none of them are in the screening program. So heart disease, for example, and lung disease, are, lung cancer, are not gender specific and could be screened for. Yet two of our three screening programs are for women only. And that's, from the, for the men in the room, just a, an interesting perspective. 
whereas lung cancer and heart disease affect both sexes but do affect men more. So my question, which is, slightly, which is unrelated, and that's the comment over, the question is, um, should we not be getting to a point in which we're stratifying the population for screening? The blunderbuss approach of everybody from 50 to, to 74 come in and have screening. Should we not be starting to look at screening those people who are low risk less often and those people who are high risk more often? Who'd like to tackle that one? I'll have a go Go um, for it. Yes. And I'll get you to keep it fairly tight just so yes. we can keep the, moving the through. The short answer is yes. I think we should be doing that, and I'm sure that we will be doing more of that, and that I think we can expect to see tailored screening programs. But one also has to be aware of the opportunity costs of doing this. And as you said, top five causes of death are not what we're talking about. Although, actually, breast cancer probably would be pretty close to up there, I would think. No. But, so there is. If we can have really, really, really good treatment services, if breast cancer treatment was so good that you could ensure that nobody died of it because the treatment was so good, then we wouldn't need a screening program anymore. So I think that ultimately that's where we need to be because screening, as Glenn said, screening costs a lot of money. It does do harm and there are big opportunity costs. So I think we need to make sure we are very evidence-based in how we make our decisions about introducing new screening programs and make sure that we don't um, misplace those vital health resources that are better needed for other purposes. Thank you. This lady down the front. Thank you. Um, I just want to get back Maybe to the, just pop it closer of, to the uh, of the talk tonight. Cancer screening, are we harming the healthy? I think we've spent enough time on breasts and I'm a woman, um, but I, I would like to be uh, able to speak about prostate. Indeed, that, and that's, yeah, really if yours do. is the last question, that's exactly where I want to go. Are you happy to come back to yours at the end? Because, yes, um, I mean, we, the, clearly breast cancer is one where um, there's a lot of engagement by our community, uh, although the Minister for Health has recently said she's disappointed that rates are falling. So let's talk about prostate cancer and what I'd really like to get clear, just for those who don't know, and Liz, perhaps you can explain exactly what the PSA test involves. Uh, so the PSA is a blood test um, and uh, it's... Um, you know, it, well, it, sometimes it's added on to a list of other uh, tests that are done. So maybe, you know, sometimes GPs might order it at the same time as they're ordering other blood tests. Um, it's, it's something that is relatively um, non-specific. So it's a, it's a test for the prostate-specific antigen. It's produced by the prostate gland, but it actually goes up for a variety of reasons. So it will actually increase with age anyway. Uh, it goes up when somebody has an infection. Um, it can go up with very vigorous exercise, such as you know people who are very keen cyclists. You can see it sometimes goes up in those circumstances. So it's a, it's a bit non-specific, and as such, it's not... Um, a great test in terms of a screening test. When we put it out there and we get a result back, uh, it doesn't, you know, there will be a lot of false positives associated with that. And is that why it isn't part of a national screening program? 
Um, Alex might want to add to this, but essentially, you know, when you look at a national screening program, you want the benefits to outweigh the harms, and there isn't the evidence that that's the case for PSA testing. Um, there are a lot of harms associated with PSA testing. The benefits in terms of the number of lives saved, uh, well, it's um, probably a bit inconclusive as to whether it does save lives, but it's a small number of lives for the number of tests and the number of false positives and the number of harms that are potentially caused because even doing a prostate biopsy can be associated with increased risks of infection that can lead to hospitalisation. So, Glenn, mm. is it your view that all men over 50 should get a PSA test? Well, he's one over 50 who won't be. Um, no, although I should say research done by Bruce Armstrong shows that Medicare is currently paying for PSA tests for men over 50 close to 20% of all men aged 50 plus are already having an, essentially an annual PSA test. So the horse is bolted in a sense. We may not have an organised program, but we've got a disorganised program in a sense it's happening. So the key question in public health terms are, what do we do? Do we ignore it? And I think we do so at our peril because it may end up causing a lot of damage. Or do we try and manage this? And, and I think possibly one thing that's not been said clearly tonight is the reason for having organised screening is that you can try and control the quality and follow up at each point. So we don't have a US system which is more laissez-faire where uh, you have opportunistic testing and it's not controlled. It's, it's more organised. So I, I think Liz is right. At the moment, um, I think you've got to screen upwards of 1,400 men to avert one prostate cancer death. And because it's a disease that affects typically men in the older age group, and in fact many men um, will, well not many, but some will die of prostate cancer and never quite know it, um, we have to look very carefully at what we're doing here. And, and so we may end up in this instance uh, promoting a test which is not terrific. It's not a really effective test. Um, and causing more harm than benefit. Now, can I get an indication on this side of the room? So there's a question down the front here. Where's our microphone gone? We might move into questions. I know there'll be other issues that, that our panel will want to raise up, but this gentleman right down the front. Hello. Um, the PSA test is a really fatuous test, as has been pointed out several times. But, uh, looking statistically at me, I have definitely got cancer, but I don't know I've got it, but I'm going to die with it. Now, you said a lot of men die of prostatic cancer and don't know it. No, they don't die of prostatic cancer at all. They die of something else. So that, that was not quite correct at all. And the harm done with people having to have prostatic operations is absolutely indescribable once you know a few people who have had prostatic carcinoma who have had subsequent operation, who have now rendered impotent, rendered incontinent, uh, and a thousand other things wrong with them. And the psychological damage done is enormous. And it's a terrible test. And a lot of recommendations that it should never be performed. Yeah, and you, who in the panel would like to, oh, sorry, pick up on those comments? 
There's only one point I just want to pick up on. Uh, people can die of prostate cancer, uh, not just with prostate cancer. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm not proposing uh, a proponent for screening uh, in no way, but I, I think it's important to understand that prostate cancer can be deadly. Alex, this is something that you've looked at about the potential harm in healthy men. Yeah, um, I think to sort out the confusion, Glenn said, I think you made a slip of the tongue and you should have said die with prostate cancer rather than of it. That's my, my guess as to what happened there. Because you're right, I mean, we know that from autopsy studies that some, something up towards 60 to 80 percent of men, once they get to that, those sort of ages, 60, 70, 80 years of age, actually have prostate cancer. So if you looked hard enough for it, you could find it. But we know that the vast, vast, vast majority of those men do not die of that prostate cancer. They die, as you say, with it. I think prostate PSA testing is um, not a very good deal. If I was a man, I don't think, I'm certain I wouldn't have one. Um, but the reason for that is nothing to do with gender politics. It's because <laughs> the evidence shows, as Liz suggested, we've had a number of randomised trials and basically after doing it, it's inconclusive. We have one that showed no benefit, no life saved. One showing a very, that very few uh, deaths from prostate cancer were averted. And so it's a matter of balancing that against the very large harm. Because unlike with lung cancer screening and breast cancer screening, where we certainly there's an issue with overdiagnosis, but with prostate cancer, it's an enormous issue with overdiagnosis. So it's been estimated probably in the vicinity of 30 to 50 men overdiagnosed, extra men overdiagnosed with prostate cancer and treated with it for every one man whose prostate cancer death is averted by screening. So it's, that's the reason why so many health authorities recommend against it. Roberta. Uh, yeah, my husband insists on having PSA tests every year, and I have tried to suggest there are other options, um, but he doesn't really want to hear. But on the other hand, he had uh, an uncle that died of prostate cancer, and it wasn't particularly pretty. So, I mean, I get back to my um, sort of uh, feeling that a lot of us make decisions not based on the mathematics, but based on the emotion. And can I just say, I think that's completely and utterly reasonable because the service is available in this country. Um, people who have a family history will be at higher risk. And so long as a man is well informed of what he's risking, of what the harms are, then I think there's no reason why a well-informed man shouldn't choose to have a PSA test if he but wants Alex, to. Alex, do you think the government should pay for it? Oh, Glenn. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to put me on the spot. Yeah, I, I do. I think what we need... Look, that's a really good question because it was me that was talking a lot about opportunity costs and yeah, it's yeah, very expensive. But I think what we need is a forum like this and we've been talking about some deliberative methods that we can do in a, to actually engage the community in trying to address questions like that for a program like PSA screening. Is it sufficiently good buy that the community should pay for it? Um, can I... I'll get you the microphone. I'll let Liz just add in there and then we'll do a follow-up question. I think, I think the issue of cost is really important because it's not actually so much the cost of the blood test, it's actually the cost of all the treatment and investigation that happens there. You know, I mean, prostate 
uh, robotic prostate surgery is very expensive. And uh, you know, we're seeing pretty high rates of prostatectomy in New South Wales now compared to some of the other states. And, and I think the PSA test is just the beginning and a very small part of the cost, but leads to a much bigger cost down the track. Now, did you want to follow up with a question there? Uh, I was just going to say that uh, having the PSA done, um, if, if a doctor uh, advises a patient that the test is of no use and they subsequently develop prostatic cancer, now the medical legal implications of not having that test have never been explored and uh, I think that that's one of the most important factors of it. Yes, so I think um, it's a really good point that you raise and I think it's the reason why quite a lot of GPs do actually do PSA testing because the community is aware, you know, well inevitably people come in and they will tell you about various people that they know who've got prostate cancer who wouldn't have known about it if they hadn't had the test done. And, um, you know, the fear of litigation is something that doctors live with. But what I, I, I try and reassure doctors, and particularly, you know, having been the president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, that if a peer standard is that PSA testing is not recommended, and the, the RACGP does not recommend PSA screening, uh, that should it come to court, you will be judged by your peers and you should not be found to be negligent in having not offered that test. Now, any other questions for the panel? So I might take this, this young woman uh, in the blue top and then on this side, who was it? The gentleman at the back and one down the front here. Uh, and then what I will do is just see if there are any questions. <laughs> I'm sorry, Linda. Um, if there are any questions on other um, types of screening that people want to ask. So please. Right, thanks. So um, Professor Lee just brought up the fact that the interpretation of the screening results actually poses quite a um, sizable risk for mm. in um, increasing the false positives. Um, and I just was wondering about what sort of measures for standardization of the actual interpretation of these um, screens is there across Australia or within... This is for breast screening mammography? Um, uh, yeah, yes. for breast um, for mammography or for the... I guess P PSA yes. doesn't really... Uh, I think one of the benefits of uh, being involved with the uh, breast, breast cancer screening you know, with Breast Screen Australia is the quality assurance that goes... Uh, that is involved in all parts of uh, breast screen from go to woe. Uh, it is the only area of uh, radiology and in possibly medicine where every single mammogram is read by two people. Um, uh, and if there's discordance, if the two readers who, are, who don't know what the other reader read uh, disagree, a third reader comes in. Uh, and so we have very uh, profound clinical audit. Uh, secondly, because it's an organised program that uh, Glenn mentioned, uh, there are standards that we have to uh, reach and maintain. And if a service doesn't reach those standards, be it um, uh, in the quality of the mammograms and the quality of the care that the women who come in don't reach, uh, that service will be, will be discredited. And there have been services in Australia. So there is a uniformity between the specialisation yes. of the 
Within breast screen, yes. But not perhaps with PSA testing? Not with PSA testing. That's why I asked the question about uh, what we're talking about. The, the other flow-on benefit is, of that is that uh, the people that are involved in, for radiology and surgeons and pathologists who are involved in breast screen, they're also involved in the diagnostic side. Uh, so um, I'm involved in, in the general radiology practices and see women for diagnostic imaging. I'm also involved in breast screen and hopefully the skills that I get from breast screening will flow on to, to the general. So your question is very important, quality insurance is very important and that's what you need to have in any organised screening program. Now, a question from the back. I just wanted to raise a brief point and maybe get the panel to comment on it. Um, with the way the question's been posed tonight, we've inevitably ended up concentrating on harm. But I think it'd be a shame if people left here tonight thinking that cancer screening is inherently uh, not a great endeavour. Um, so, for example, cervical cancer mortality rates have fallen by about 70% over the last 20 to 30 years since screening has been organised on a population level. If we've got a disease that's sufficiently deadly, if we have a test that's sufficiently accurate and we have a follow-up treatment that's sufficiently good, we will do good with screening and, and we mm. shouldn't lose sight of that. Mm. Who'd like to pick up that ball? I'd say, here, here. <laughs> I agree. <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> yes, there's the potential to do good, but um, look, I think one of the problems we have in public health is that, uh, if it's a problem, Screening is regarded as a success. And you have to go right back to screening for tuberculosis and, and the imagery of vans and uh, x-rays and, of course, then mammography screening comes along. So I think there's uh, a high level of trust um, for those of us that, that are in the business of looking at benefits and harms uh, and, and, I guess, a tendency to, to think that all screening could or should be good. So I think we've talked about a couple of different cancers tonight. We have to draw a distinction between different types of cancer and different types of screening. And, and that's a harder message to get out to the public because if the core message is screening is successful, it's popular and it works, then how do we nuance uh, the argument that in fact, well, not always, or for some. And then of course we've got what I regard as a less than ideal rollout of bowel cancer screening, where we had the situation where initially, if you're 50, we'll give you the kit. Oh, and then if you're 50 or, was it 54 or 55, we'll give you a kit, and it was messy. Uh, it was a bit like, can you make up your mind who's eligible for screening and then we'll do it well. So, uh, look, I think you're right, Andrew, we shouldn't lose sight of the benefits, but we've got to make sure that we, in a sense, don't fall victim to our own success. Thank you. And there's a question down here. Uh, and yes, I think this gentleman at the end, and then I'll do the last question, whoever had their hand up just there, and then we might just move into some of these issues about informed decision making. So what would you like to ask? Uh, the medical fraternity do a great job of selling the sizzle, but uh, in terms of informing people actually what's involved after the diagnosis, they seem to fall flat. Anecdotal evidence, uh, I've got friends that have uh, had prostate cancer, prostate screening. My uh, stepfather just had um, a needle biopsy today and he was really unaware of what the procedure involved. I suppose that's a case of when you're sitting on the other side of the desk and you've got a professional telling you what's going on, you just go blank. And reaffirm what this gentleman said over here in terms of the uh, interventions. 
I had a mate that was 49 years old, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. The doctor said, well, just keep an eye on it. They watched it for six months, decided that uh, to do a prostatectomy. He ended up impotent, ended up having to inject himself in the penis when he wanted to make love to his wife. His wife was younger than him and died 12 months later of another unrelated cancer in a very painful way. That was 12 months of his life and his wife's life that was wasted. Another friend was uh, in his late 50s, early 60s, went in for a, pro uh, a prostate procedure, uh, died a week later of a blood clot. Um, information is a pretty important thing. I don't think people are getting it. I play golf with a lot of guys that are in their early 70s and they say, uh, oh, it's no big deal, you just get the robot to pull out your, prost your prostrate. So they don't even know the proper term for it. And it's like if you're over 50 and you're a male, your prostate's in the crosshairs. And it's like, should we be proactive and just get it whipped out and not worry about cancer at all? That seems to be where we're heading. So, Liz, you probably face these sorts of situations. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, think, um, uh, I think the point that I would really like to make here is that you're likely to be better informed um, and feel more comfortable with your decision-making if you've actually got a, a long-standing relationship with a, a particular GP, someone who has, over the years, got to know you, got to know what your personality's like, understands your family history, understands what you've been through before, and doesn't actually have to cover off all of that stuff every consultation, can spend more time exploring the issues with you, and you may feel more comfortable talking about it. GPs take you up to the, a certain point, uh, and then they have to refer you off for further investigation, and then you know you, you'll have other practitioners that you have to deal with. And I spend quite a lot of my time talking to my patients, uh, debriefing their consultation with the specialist. They've they've been to the specialist. They aren't really sure what's going on. They've been booked in for a procedure. They don't really know exactly what's involved. They come in and see me, and I go through it with them. You know, I debrief the letter that I've received from the specialist and and answer, answer their questions. Um, I'm aware that, you know, with the state of general practice today and the shortages that there have been of GPs and, you know, access issues for people that they often struggle to find someone who they can develop that relationship with. But I think if you do have the opportunity, it's well worth investing in. And it is actually one of the byproducts of screening programs is that they take people to the GP on a semi-regular basis and they allow that relationship to develop, um, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why, you know, we see more women. You know, they come in regularly for their Pap smears, and it gives us the opportunity to build that relationship over time. Can now, I'm going to get in? Alex to add a few words here. I'm just conscious of time, so after that, we've got, I think, a last question. Someone over there had the microphone, so. I think you make a really, really good point. We just did a national survey, and we found that 10% of the population had been told about the risk of overdiagnosis. We found that 18% of men who'd had a PSA test had, had been told about overdiagnosis. So that's the vast majority who have not been told. And 10% of women who'd had a breast uh, screening mammogram had been told. So we know that there is not much information in the community about it. We, we, and we need to do a much better job of getting information out there. I was speaking to a woman in the UK who went to breast screening and, and 
She went through the whole experience of having um, a false positive, being recalled, eventually being diagnosed with cancer. Then she found out about overdiagnosis and she was furious. She said to me, I was so angry and so frustrated because I'd had a baby and I, because I was an older mum, I'd been given extensive counselling on having uh, prenatal testing and the risks that could be involved in that. She said, I spent hours going through that and they invite you to screening like it's, no, it's of no more consequence than going for a dental checkup. I think that has to change. We have to do a better job of informing people at the outset. I agree with what Roberta says about there are then subsequent decisions when you get to treatment, but we must do a better job of informing people fully about the pros and cons of screening at the outset. Well, you indicated you wanted to yeah. add something to that. I, I agree entirely with uh, that the, we must get the information out, and I, I agree that we do a bad job. Um, there is information there, but it is very hard to find. Uh, Cancer Australia has issued a position statement on overdiagnosis, which is a very good uh, information, but I just don't know how much it gets disseminated. Uh, and this position statement has been revised three times uh, since 2008. The last time was last year, 2014. But the figures that Alex mentions, that only 10% of women know about it, means that that statement is not getting out to people. Yeah, they all want to jump on here, Liz, then Roberta. Um, it, and then one of the real challenges for GPs is time, um, because you know, you, 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 from the moment you get in to the moment you leave at the end of the day, you've got people booked to see you every 15 minutes or so, and it's actually, uh, you know, you run over with one, then you, you're trying to catch up with another. It's actually, time management is a big thing, but there is a great opportunity to embed decision-making tools into the medical software programs, and that's one of the things that you know we, we try and talk to the software vendors about, so that um, you know even in a pictorial sense, it, it makes it easy for you to understand at the outset just what the risks and uh, the benefits and harms are. Um, with things like prostate cancer screening, um, there's. Uh, um, there's really good information that's put out there by the National Health and Medical Research Council. But, you know, if I have a patient comes in and sees me and raises the issue of PSA screening, I will often print that off, give it to them and tell them to go away and read it and then come back and we can talk about it later. But it's, it's just, it is a challenge from a, a time and efficiency point of view, which I think is why sometimes it isn't done and it's not done well. And, and perhaps you know, doctors don't appreciate that they haven't actually done it and what the consequences of that are. Roberta, you wanted to add something? Uh, yes, look, certainly Cancer Australia. I mean, th th there's no better um, website for information on all sorts of cancers. But I mean, we live in this information world. We're surrounded by information. And I think sometimes we just are surrounded to such an extent that we no longer hear or see. So, I mean, the information certainly is there. Um, I think decision tools are very, very good um, so that you can have a pictorial representation of, of the risks and things. But, I mean, you talk about a woman who was very uh, angry because, you know, she had a false, false positive. But on the other hand, another woman might be in that situation and she might think, well, I know that I went through all this, but at least I know I'm okay now. So, you know, different people have, have different reactions to this. I think no, I've just I... got to add just, sorry, one point there, which is um, we've got to get information out there, but we've got to go the next step and actually draw out the implications of that information. Mm. And it's got to be very much 
person-driven person. We've got to empower people to actually use the information and, and get opinions and take those opinions to the general practitioner and discuss them. Yeah, look, I think people, um, consumers need input from uh, clinicians as well. I mean, it's very hard for people just to be on the computer looking at Cancer Australia and working out their risk and everything. I think some people can do that, but most can't. Um, a good quality GP um, in breast cancer, a, a breast, breast care nurse. I mean, we really need the input of, of other people to help us to work out what is in our mind, because sometimes it's not obvious, even to us. Now, they, and they are wonderful things for us to discuss. I'm conscious there might be one more prostate cancer question that we might just dip back to, and then I'll just take, we'll, we'll wrap up very, very soon, and I'll just see if there is anyone has a last question um, about the sorts of things we've just been talking about. Um, so you said PSA is not a good test because it's not very specific, but what about looking at how fast the PSA goes up over time? or looking at the PSA ratios in the blood compared to some other blood protein. Would that help with the screening given by PSA? Who'd like to have a view about tracking the PSA over time as being a useful tool? Uh, well, I, I guess, you know, I mean, obviously, if you've got very high, the higher uh, PSAs, you know, really high PSAs are going to be more, more likely to be associated with a cancer if they're consistent over, you know, consistently climbing over time. But I think they're not the ones that we are often seeing. I mean, if you're actually doing a screening program, what you're often seeing are ones that are marginal and... and um, you know, then they maybe go up a little bit or down a little bit, and it's really, it's just not a good test in terms of uh, sitting back and, you know, feeling comfortable that you've had a test to say you do or you don't have cancer. I mean, it just doesn't really answer the question that you want answered when you go and have that test, and for that reason, it's probably um, you know, it depends, you know, if, if your father died in his 40s from prostate cancer, then you're in a totally different risk group and, you know, we would approach it quite differently. But it's, it's really, you know, unfortunately, it's not a good test to use as a screening tool. Now, we've talked about some of the other tests. We've m mentioned bowel cancer, we've mentioned cervical cancer, lung cancers come up, general genetic testing and screening. Does anyone have a question they feel hasn't been uh, addressed that they'd like to ask, uh, one that you'd rather you know, do in front of everybody rather than as we talk afterwards? One, you get the last question down here. <laughs> we'll get the microphone to you. Where's the panel going to stand with DNA testing? What a great question, because the one I'd like you to wrap up is to think about the stuff that's coming. What is the future? And, and that clearly is one of the things that might be there. So Can you please pass the microphone to that man in the blue jacket back there? Because he is the expert in the room, I would say, on DNA testing. And you're right. In fact, I was looking for the opportunity to say this is the tip of the iceberg. We have documented overdiagnosis now in uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, diabetes, pre-diabetes, ADHD, dementia, um, whole uh, pulmonary embolus, lung cancer, 
thyroid cancer, as I started off with, you know, the tip of the iceberg, and the real iceberg is DNA testing, is genomic testing. So I'll let Chris talk to Would them. you like to introduce yourself to everybody and, and uh, say a few <clears> words? <throat> I'd already had a few beers, so... Uh, <laughs> well, it'll uh, be really interesting then. Sure. My name's Chris Samsarian. I'm a cardiologist at University of Sydney and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Um, it's a great question, and, and it, it uh, touches on every aspect that's been discussed tonight. Newer technologies today, I can take your blood today and in six weeks' time have all 22,000 of your genes sequenced available for analysis. So <laughs> it's scary. But what we, the issue is, again, like Alex mentioned earlier, this is an emerging technology and the technology is going much faster than what we know in terms of our understanding of the actual genes. So we're going to end up with incidental omas, as we heard earlier, in genetics. We talked about a whole body scan before. This is a whole genome scan. So you'll get information about your breast cancer genes, your prostate genes, your heart genes, your lung genes. And so which, gene, which results are relevant, which are not relevant. So it is a, while it's very exciting, and I spend my whole day and every day of my life looking at the genetics of heart disease, there are limitations to it because there is the big risk of uh, over-interpreting or over-diagnosing things and, and informing patients of things that they didn't even want to know about. So it's a great question, great topic, and uh, maybe a debate for another time. Uh, it might have its own Sydney Health Forum, yes. Uh, now, just to, as a final word, you've got about 20 seconds each to, to sum up, I suppose, uh, either where you think things are going, or more importantly, how, how, what, what you would be saying to people about being informed, and whether it comes down to going with the pack or it being very individual choice. So do, will we start at your end, Yeah, start my end. Uh, obviously, I would uh, recommend uh, screening, appropriate screening in the appropriate age groups, but I think it is really important to inform the person who wants to be screened with good information. We'll see if there's a theme that uh, comes uh, through. And the last thing that, uh, that I'll say is, with, as far as breast cancer overdiagnosis, what we need to address is overtreatment and over-treatment is, is being uh, looked at really seriously, hand-in-hand uh, hand with the over-diagnosis. Thank you. Liz? Uh, I guess I'd say that um, the answer is not always in a test and that understanding the limitations of tests is, is really important right. and while some are good, you know, some are not so good and that, um, you know, I've got to put in a plug for developing that relationship with a GP because I actually think that um, that can help you navigate what is becoming an increasingly complex landscape uh, where you're going to be faced with a lot of health decisions over the future. Glenn. I think we've got to switch the, uh, the balance from providers to empower people. And how we do that, part, partly is through information, but it's also about, we, we have a lot of rhetoric about evidence-based choice and about values Somehow we've got to get that together. The internet's come up a little bit tonight, um, but it's obviously a very powerful vehicle to get that into the homes of people. So yes, in general practice um, rooms, but also where people are, we need to empower them to make that choice where and when they want. Thank you, Roberta. Yes, do remember Cancer Australia website. It really is. It's the, the, for Australians, it's, it's the one to go to. Um, but I think really we need, consumers often need help making their decisions such as the GP. 
um, somebody with some medical knowledge, not a friend, but somebody with, with um, expertise that can help them make the, the decision that is best for them. But in general, I think screening, breast screen is um, a risk worth taking if you're over 50. Alex, last word to you. <coughs> I think that really is the tip of the iceberg. I think that as a community we need to understand that overdiagnosis is going to be an important issue for the health system. It's going to have big implications for the success and the sustainability of the health system into the future. And I think we all need to you know, be um, educating ourselves and getting more informed on it. Uh, I suppose if I might put in a plug, next week we have a visiting uh, GP from the UK who is going to, she's actually a retired general practitioner and she's um, interested in the overuse of testing, overdiagnosis, overtreatment, but very broadly defined. So it's not going to be about cancer screening, it's going to be as it applies across healthcare. She's a very eloquent speaker and she, she feels that it touches on social issues and how we actually deal with our own fears of facing death and ageing because, as Liz said, the answer's not always in a test. So um, same time next week here for Dr Iona Heath. Indeed, same time but not same place. Uh, so if you go to the Sydney Ideas website, you'll find the details for Dr Iona Heath uh, next Wednesday night. Um, thank you for your involvement and could we please give the panel a round of applause. I'd especially like to thank people who shared very personal stories. That, that really adds to the discussion that we have. Um, if you've enjoyed tonight, not only is there next Wednesday's forum, but the last forum in the Sydney Ideas Health series, which is on the 14th of October. And that's focusing on what does it mean to die well? Uh, so we'll, we'll have a panel again to discuss those sorts of issues. If you have any other general questions about tonight's event, please get in touch with us at sydney.ideas at sydney.edu.au and we can give you that email address afterwards. And if you'd like to receive information about these or other things,